Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hello there. Hello, General Kenobi. Wait, why am I doing Kenobi's voice? (laughs) (laughs) It's the only voice I know how to do. (laughs) Anyway, how are you? What have you been up to? Uh, Well, uh, not much, really, in the time that it's between recordings this time. Well, you're you're getting ready to go on a bit of a bit of a trek, aren't you? So I suppose you're getting everything packed and uh, prepped to go, as it were. In fact, it seems to be everyone's going off on uh, little trips. I've, I, I know of at least two people at work who've gone off on trips abroad, and then my parents have done the same. They ended up in Spain, sending me photos of ibex and griffin vultures. And oh, very nice. Yeah, very. Just a little bit, sort of like, cool. Do I get to go now? <laughs> Do I get to go somewhere hot with interesting, bizarre species everywhere? I've got to make them the best of it. I've got to batten down the hatches as well. In fact, it's going to get rather uh, windy in the next couple of days around our part it of the is, world. Yeah, it's already I, very wet. It is very wet, and yeah, it's going to get very stormy. Yeah, I, I'm hopefully going to see lots of interesting species though, because we're going to go to Loro Park for my daughter's birthday. Very nice, a very mm. cool place. That'd be a it, first for me. I've not been there. It's the only time I've ever seen an orca. Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're quite a big animal when you see them up close like yeah. that. You forget how big they actually are. Um, worth going in the splash zone, but definitely worth yeah. it. Yeah, doesn't matter. Definitely if you try get a bit wet. You know, um, nah, it's going to be hot. So the only thing about Laura Park that I was disappointed with uh, was when we went there, the jellyfish tank um, was drained for maintenance. Oh, so right. it's a yeah, two-story okay. jellyfish tank, and you go up a set of stairs, um, and the whole thing had been drained out. They're obviously doing something to it, so we yeah. didn't get to see that when we were there, which is a bit of a disappointment because I was really looking forward to seeing that. But their That's puffin shame, and, yeah. and penguin enclosures are absolutely amazing. Definitely remember those bits. They were really, really quite good. Oh, their parrot collection, second to none. I mean... Yes, uh, well, saw Laura parrots Park, there that I'd, I'd never even seen before. Yeah, ah, gorgeous place. But yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Have you ever been there before? Never. No, I've been uh, to their uh, their aquarium site on Gran Canaria, uh, Poema del Mar. Uh, That's a really good aquarium. Yeah, really good. Oh, well, you're you're in for, you're in for a treat. They've got quite a few big cats as well. The only mm. major downside, they got white tigers. I had heard they had white tigers, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'm not keen on. I'm unaware as to whether they breed them. I should hope not. No, I don't think they do. As uh, I, uh, yeah, I would hope so as well. Yeah, well, apart from the fact that you're preparing to go off to sunnier climes for a week or so, and hmm. I'm preparing to batten down the hatches, I don't think there's much else that we've got going on apart from us preparing possibly to do a bit of a trek to uh, to possibly do a bit of filming and set something up for yeah. a future episode. So uh, keep your keep your eyes out for that. Hopefully it'll uh, occur at some point in this year. Um if if it all goes to plan and we don't get lost along the way somewhere. 
But shall we jump into the news for this week? Let's let's do it. Mm. It's the news. Right, well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, take us out. Every week, we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines and where to find them. Gareth, take it away. Yes. So from the BBC... Um, I've got more than 5,000 acorns picked at Ancient Woodland. Uh, More than 5,000 acorns have been picked by volunteers of an ancient woodland on Dartmoor. The 27 people joined Moor Trees and the Duchy of Cornwall to carry out the work at Wistman's Wood on Sunday. Uh, And those acorns are the initial step in bolstering the existing woodland, helping to protect genetic diversity found within uh, the, uh, the, the area and basically helping to expand uh, that part of Cornwall's uh, ancient oak woodlands. I've met one of the two other people from Moor Trees. They're um, they're pretty good. They're doing a really good job. Yeah, cool. Uh, this comes to us from The Verge online. Lakers legend Rick Fox built a house that can suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So this is the news that three-time NBA champion with the Los Angeles Lakers until I enjoyed saying that. Rick <laughs> Fox has built a house in the Bahamas that sucks carbon dioxide out of the air using an, al- an alternative concrete. After a successful NBA career, just to underpin that, uh, Fox embarked on a Hollywood career that he knocked on the head after Hurricane Dorian struck his home country of the Bahamas in 2019. The storm wrecked 75% of uh, the island, or sorry, 75% of the homes on the worst hit island, and Fox says it motivated him to team with others to co-found Partana, uh, producing a concrete alternative that does away with cement, a material that's responsible for 8% of the of uh, global carbon dioxide emissions. Patana's alternative mixture not only shuns cement, but cures in ambient temperatures, reducing the amount of energy necessary for production. Binder ingredients in the mix absorb carbon dioxide from the air and retain it. Even once the building is constructed, it continues to do this. And if the building is ever demolished, not only will it continue to carry out this key task, but it can be reused as aggregate to make more of the alternate concrete. So next, I've got new scientist. Plant presumed extinct sprouts in a road after more than 40 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) The mini galaxy plant was found flowering on a gravel road that after no official sightings have been made since 1981. Um, It was a presumed extinct flower from a small region in Southern Africa, rediscovered by scientists after more than 40 years. The mini galaxy plant is a small pale yellow iris-like flower uh, that blooms for only a few hours after it rains, and it's unique to a tiny area of the Western Cape uh, in the southernmost tip of Africa. So always check the roadsides. You never know what you're going to come across. Hmm. And from Life Science Online, last known crocodile in Europe lived in Spain 4.5 million years ago, researchers say. A team of paleontologists in Spain have uncovered a 4.5 million year old fossilized crocodile tooth. Uh, Its owner likely among the last of its kind in Europe. The excavation site where the tooth originated is the Baza 1 in Granada, a 323 square foot site that has yielded over 2,000 fossils, only one of which is crocodilian in origin, and that's this tuff, and it closely resembles the dentition of Nile crocodiles. That being said, 
the lack of crocodile specimens from this site is a cause for intrigue. Hmm. I say we need more crocodiles. Let's bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) More European crocodiles. Why not? Um, From uh, AustralianGeographic.com, I've got snake cannibalism caught on camera for the first time, or or certainly for this species. Uh, And it's an example of nature at its absolute wildest. Python has been uh, recorded eating a fellow of its own species. Two black-headed pythons, which are a a really, really pretty species of snake, in the uh, far north of Queensland, uh, were basically captured on film by by a rather interested onlooker and has said, fortunately for me, uh, but not so fortunately for the python being consumed, it took around 15 minutes when I had first witnessed the initial constriction to the python finishing the meal and returning to its burrow from only about 10 feet away, uh, says sanctuary manager Nick Stock. Um, This gave him plenty of time to get a good amount of uh, shots with his camera and fully document the event. So uh, it's it's a really wild photo of a um, well one olive sorry one black headed python eating another one. Hmm. Uh, and from BBC Online, Cleeforps girl saves hundreds of starfish washed up by Storm Babbitt. Uh, a three year old girl took it upon herself to help in the rescue efforts of around two hundred starfish stranded on the beach, bravely scooping them up with her hands. And return them to the rock pools alongside volunteers of Cleeforps Wildlife Rescue. Oh, that's that's a really good, like, yeah, that that makes you feel good, you know. I'm, it does. I'm, yeah, that's good. My well, one of the the stories that I have, or the last short one I've got for you, is uh, the from the Waikato Times. If you remember, I reported on um, a couple of weeks ago how they were reintroducing kakapo to the mainland in a fenced-off area. Yes, yes. Yes, you do. Good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, well, uh, there was a bit of a mishap uh, at the sanctuary because um, oh, no. the $900,000 plan to keep this particular bird uh, in was completely foiled by a downed tree. When the first of, ten per- uh, first of these 10 birds uh, currently on the mountain were welcomed in July, it was reported that the sanctuary had spent $900,000 upgrading the fences with over 40 kilometers of steel sheeting to prevent the birds from climbing out. However, hmm. that doesn't prevent a tree from falling on it and oh, crushing no. the fence. Luckily, though, for uh, for these kakapo, and, and I think that no predators got in, but one of the kakapo, or the, the, the original one, decided to go for a bit of a wander. Luckily, all the birds are satellite tagged, and as soon as volunteers saw that they were basically outside of the uh, the perimeter, they knew something must be wrong. They turned up pretty quickly. They were able to to make sure that he was safe, recaptured, and uh, the fence fixed. So it's a good news story at the end, but um, one that shows that you can you can put in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, fencing, and it can all go wrong when a tree falls on it. That's uh, that's really unfortunate. And from fizz.org dot, fizz. online, endangered whales live in area earmarked for gas exploration. So uh, many cetacean species, including some endangered ones, live year-round in the Hellenic Trench in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Greece. Previously, their inner territories had been unknown, a mystery that was used as justification for seismic surveying in the area, an activity which is hugely detrimental and harmful to cetaceans. But new data has now confirmed that species, including the endangered sperm whale, live in the deep trench waters all year round. 
Other species in decline due to noise and activity in the area also include Cuvier's beaked whales and striped dolphins. Greenpeace are among the numerous parties now resisting further surveying and exploration plans. And uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I've been Aaron Watts reporting to you live from the cupboard. <laughs> Good night. No, that is that is the that brings us to the end of the uh, of of the newsreel. And uh, I just want you guys to remember, just as uh, as as we have a lot of um, articles that we find ourselves. You guys can suggest uh, uh, some to us too. Uh, you can do so through the normal means. Uh, that is email, fa- uh, social media, um, smoke signals, didgeridoo. Um, carrier pigeon. Home carrier pigeon and any other way you can think of. But yeah, get your articles into us and you might see them here or as part of our main topics. And Gareth has the main topic this week. Hmm. I'm going to suggest uh, if you want to fire it, if you're a particularly good shot with a bow and arrow, you know, attaching it um, <laughs> to, a, to a bow and uh, to an arrow and firing it uh, to the side of a building. Or, you know, I've always liked the idea of someone leaving it sort of embedded with a large hunting knife, uh, you know, oh, an yes. article on, on a, a rustic wooden table. Um, or a, 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 message, a message in a bottle at sea. Yes. Yeah. Although, you know, don't throw things in the sea. Um, at least, I suppose a glass. No, no, of course, of course breaks not. Down. No. But uh, anyway, well, I I digress because um, our main article this week is that there's been a brand new species of pangolin discovered. Which, oh, yes, I did see this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, very cool. It's it's certainly one of these um, these stories you don't expect to hear, but it's got a rather interesting twist. Um, as we know, uh, if you cast mm-hmm. your mind back to our interview with Prague Zoo and their pangolins, which were Aaron, what species were they? They were um, Indo-Chinese, weren't they? Yes, yes, they were. Yeah, I think they were. So they're they're one of what well, one of the eight species of pangolin found throughout the world, um, although nine species now. Wildlife experts have say that pangolins are by far the world's most trafficked mammals. They're poached for their scales, for their meat, used in traditional medicines, all this load of bunk. And there's well, basically eight species that are all under various levels of threat, or sorry. Make that nine species now, because researchers have determined through finding scales in uh, Hong Kong uh, and various parts of mainland China, like uh, Yuan province, uh, in, from 2012 and 2013, right the way up to 2019, um, they've done genetic analysis and have found that it's a previously unrecognized species that has yet to be actually formally described. So this species hasn't been seen in the wild. It's only been discovered by leftover scales and genetic evidence that have Mm. come in through confiscations. So it is hiding in plain sight wherever this animal is. Uh, It was published in the National Academy of Sciences. And the amount of data that was generated over this very limited sampling time has been exceptionally impressive, says Matthew Shirley, a conservation biologist um, for the Florida International University and chair of the IUCN's SSC Pangolin Specialist Group. So basically the the group that looks at conserving uh, pangolins throughout the world, um, who was not involved with the study. Uh, It's it's pointed out in the article. So to to determine uh, that the scales belong to the new species, researchers analyzed 17 genomes, sampled from confiscated pangolin scales, and compared them with the known 138 genomes um, from the eight species that we're aware of they also scrutinized the shape the structure and the uh, the size 
of each of these 33 scales that they found, basically found that they were similar to that of Asian pangolins, um, as opposed to the African pangolins, which do turn up in Chinese markets as well. So Asian pangolins is where it seems to, to sit and suggested that it falls within the group Manis, which is primarily the Asian pangolins. So the, the genome data confirmed this as well through its family ties. And researchers have now named the new species Manis Mysteria, which I think that's a nice, that's a nice name anyway. Um, but it fits quite nicely with obviously it being a species that we haven't seen yet. Whilst this ninth pangolin has not been found and formally described by science, that doesn't mean that nobody knew that it existed. Uh, it's probably being captured and being killed and being often thought of as something like a Sunda pangolin uh, or an Indo-Chinese or a um, uh, something just basically people not knowing what it is and just catching, killing, sticking on a boat, sending it wherever. This makes um, the, uh, the animal uh, an example of what's called cryptid diversity, where unique evolutionary lineages are difficult to recognize because they look so similar to already known species. And researchers noted that they were unable to distinguish from uh, many other Asian pangolins by its scales alone. Turns out, though, that the confiscated scales have come from seven uh, individuals, and using their genomes, the researchers were able to estimate the armored animal's divergence from other pangolin species uh, over five million years ago. So they are distinct enough to be their own separate species uh, at this point. So that's really quite amazing that we know that the animal is there. We just haven't found it yet. You know, it sounds bizarre. Said as well that uh, it's possible that the specimen of a new species is already stored in a museum or natural history collection somewhere in the world. Uh, and piecing together the genetic diversity of pangolins is important for stopping their poaching to figure out uh, where illegal trafficking of these animals is coming from and to basically stop the risk of poaching to pangolins uh, throughout their range. So, yeah, there may be a university or a, a museum somewhere in the world that has one of these just sat there as listed as a Sunda pangolin or an Indo-Chinese pangolin when it, in fact, is a totally separate species that we've just not known existed for a long while. Um, and it's this sort of mm. forensic uh, enforcement um, wildlife trafficking that's, that is the new way of being able to determine exactly where some of those animals have come from and is, is really useful in trying to stop wildlife trafficking crime. So sad to see that it's an animal that we haven't discovered outright to see that it's there, but it's good to see um, it's an animal that we've we've gained more knowledge of through these sort of forensic uh, methods. So yeah, welcome welcome to the uh, the pangolin club, pangolin number nine, <laughs> pangolin species number nine. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting news. I did see this one, so I was uh, pre-briefed on it. Yeah, always good to have another another species join us, but particularly uh, one that's a member of such. Uh, endangered family. Yeah, it's 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 really really good to see. But yeah, the 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 thought of it, it's it's probably almost certainly already endangered. Um, like all the other members of the pangolin family. Yeah, of course it will be. Threats. Yeah, yeah. So. Like you, kind of you've you've already kind of said this, but they these poachers don't they they're not um they're not discriminating selectively. They they yeah. are taking each and every pangolin that they find without regard to anything yeah. so yeah it's it's yeah it's horrific wildlife trafficking crime and and needs to be stopped in and crushed 
in every single aspect of it. There's no there's no good part to that trade in in mm. any way, shape, or form. So let's move on from uh, the good but the bad news at the same time into our creature feature for this week. It's the creature feature. Right. Well, we're into this week's creature feature, Aaron. We're not uh, we're not as spooky as last week, but uh, what have you got? We're not as speak spooky as as last week. No, uh, the species I'm going to talk about tonight, Gareth, is more than a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I must admit, but it's been requested by a listener of the podcast, Jen Greenhall, who has been kind enough to support us in many ways, but most relevantly to this through Patreon at our yeah, yes. yeah at our animal ambassador tier. So if you too. Uh, would like to have a species, big or small, featured in the cupboard, head over to our Patreon and pledge your support there. But with that said, it is into the world of the small that I will be taking you this week as we once again harness the power of the Pym Particle uh, and head <laughs> towards the quantum realm in search of a quarry who boldly goes where no creature has gone before. Uh, and that's not just a pop culture reference to remark upon just how important these guys are. It is, in fact really a truism through and through because the main ecological significance of this species is that when newly developed environments arise these guys are the pioneers that first colonize it opening the door for further invertebrates to populate the habitat followed progressively of course by more and more taxa i'm talking of course about tardigrades <laughs> an animal that is so far out of my uh realm of uh expertise that this creature feature has been actually incredibly fun uh, to come up with and i hope i do the animal justice so these guys were first described in 1773 uh, by johann august ephraim geese 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 i think it is geese uh i struggled with the last two parts of that name um yeah but he's a german uh, zoologist uh, who specialized in aquatic invertebrates. Uh, the Kleiner Wasserbar, um, meaning little water bear, as it was so named, uh, was named as such because their method of walking is so similar to the gait of a bear. I didn't know that fact. Uh, ah, that made me, yeah. it made me giggle a little bit. I did always wonder why uh, uh, an animal that looked like this um, was was named a water bear. Now, now I know. Um, it wasn't, however, until 1777 when an Italian biologist by the name of Lazzaro, uh, Lazzaro Spallanzani gave them their ultimate name, Tardigrada, uh, meaning slow stepper, which is probably a lot more um, a lot more understandable, I guess. The tardigrade mm. may be small, but their huge ecological importance is matched only by their size of their range, uh, being found in infinitely diverse regions spread across the planet. They've been found in all manner of environments, including solid polar ice, hot springs, mountain peaks, leaf litter in tropical rainforests, desert dunes, and the deep Antarctic Ocean sediments. Literally everywhere and anywhere, and 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 between that, everywhere and anywhere, everywhere and anywhere. Once again, um, they they come from everywhere. Um, they've even been known to survive in space, albeit somewhat shortly such is the fortitude and extreme resilience of these micro beasts not only are they resilient 
Their survivability is helped in spades by a toughness that sees them withstand starvation and dehydration, slowing their metabolism down to less than 0.01%, allowing them to go without food or water for more than 30 years. Uh, They can also survive radiation poisoning. Uh, For you and I, Gareth, upwards of about five greys would be lethal to us. A tardigrade, on the other hand, can withstand 6,200 greys of ionizing radiation. It's there and goes, come on, do it, do it now. (laughs) Whilst, whilst you and I would be blistering and then melting and the Hulk would be getting a small power up, it goes beyond the level of the Hulk. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Um, and then other than those extremes, also extremes in, in, in both, both sides of temperature. So these guys can survive from minus 273 degrees Celsius, which I think is approaching absolute zero. Uh, all the way up to 150 degrees Celsius. And then atmospheric pressures uh, from from a vacuum, the vacuum of space, to more than 1,200 times atmospheric pressure, some up to 6,000 atmospheres. So just imagine six times the pressure at the deepest part of the Mariana Trench. These guys can survive in it. They're just um, show-offs, really. They are, they're a little bit OP. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Glad yeah. they're so small. I wonder, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, but they're so small that you wouldn't be able to crush them underfoot. I mean, not that you'd want yeah. to, but I mean, well, like, they're pretty. These guys are are gods. I think very short lived gods, but yeah. they <laughs> they are they are pretty amazing creatures, and they've been withstanding the rigors of life on our planet for nearly time untold because the the oldest confirmed tardigrade fossils date back to the Cretaceous in amber that has been found circa 145 to 66 million years in age. Uh, but they may have been around even longer, potentially for up to 500 million years, dating back to the Cambrian period uh, when they would have diverged from their closest relatives. They've survived no less than five mass extinction events, and it's thought that they could su- survive a lot worse than what they've seen thus far. Uh, and during that time, they don't seem to have changed too much with the exception of size, because it appears that the group were once a little bit bigger and have become a miniaturized version of a previous uh, ancestral species. Um, so yeah, pretty incredible animals. And there are around 1300 species of tardigrade known to science to, as of today. Um, speaking of size, there's actually not much to speak of. These critters as adults may reach anywhere between 0.1 to 1.5 millimeters in length. Uh, But the hatchlings are only marginally longer than a grass pollen, which is about 0.05 millimeters, uh, which is tiny. Well, I don't really need to tell you how tiny that is, but (laughs) it's not quite so small as to render themselves invisible, however, because using a standard low-powered microscope, you can actually find collect and observe these little guys from the comfort of your own homes uh what you're essentially looking for is an exceptionally plump round little body uh it would look short into um the body that is would look short uh for for its length proportionately um compared to the the rolls of mass that it carries around and the eight tiny little legs it shuffles around upon uh you can observe that that body is segmented it features a head complete with compound eyes and sensory bristles to help inform it of the world around it. 
three body segments, each with a pair of legs used in locomotion, and then a caudal segment with its own pair of legs, and these are used to hold on to its surroundings. Now, all of these legs are really short, and they are kitted out with roughly four to eight claws each, or suction pads. In addition, you'll see that the legs lack joints. So they really do kind of shuffle on these tiny, tiny little legs. The skin periodically sheds, as with, with all animals, but particularly as with invertebrates. And this is a process that allows the animal to continue growing. Now that you kind of know what we're looking for, uh, you need to know where to find them. And this is also relatively easy um, in terms of effort, considering the widespread nature of their range. Tardigrades can be found very quickly uh, on mosses and lichens. Um, just soak it in water and check it out on a uh, glass slide underneath the lens. But they can also be found in soil, mulch, um, anywhere along beaches, and of course the sediment found at the bottom of your pond or local lake. Though I do stress that you choose uh, you choose your collection sites wisely and don't go straying into <laughs> deep water distracted by microscopic weed beasties. Uh, and we don't want to be in trouble for encouraging you to do so. So yeah, be careful around water. Uh, but let's take a deeper dive I mean, ourselves. You don't, you don't really need to if they're in mosses and lichens. Just exactly. step outside just, the front door. Yeah, just, just scrape some to... moss off a brickwork or something, Ex you know. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to have a look, see what's going on under the hood. Uh, starting with the mouth. Uh, now, this is an area that is distinctly cylindrical or tube-like, and the animal's digestive system begins with stomatostyles, which are used to chomp up the cells of plants and invertebrates that find themselves unlucky enough to be on the tardigrades menu. The piercing action of these stomatostyles releases cell contents, which, is, which are then sucked down by the pharynx through the short esophagus and into the intestine, an organ which takes up most of the tardigrades' body length. Many species only poo when they molt, leaving the excrement behind in the old skin. And that's the end of the uh, the digestive system, obviously. But the respiratory system is very simple and primitive, uh, relying on gaseous exchange, a process that occurs across the entire surface area of the animal's body. And so no lungs are necessary, nor do any lungs exist. Um, the brain and central nervous system are also simplistic in design, with the dorsal brain positioned above a ventral nervous system pair. This brain is connected uh, below the esophagus and this is where that double ventral nerve cord originates before running along the entire length of the body now these cords themselves will branch out in the in each segment to produce lateral nerve fibers that run into the legs um so basically what you can imagine is two two um two nervous nerve cords going down the body and in each segment they sprout other nerve cords that connect to the legs so that, uh, to allow for for the nervous system to function i think at this point we have a pretty good grasp of what these guys are where we'll find them and how long they've been doing what they do but we've not yet looked at what that exactly is so what do tardigrades do well we'll start from the beginning they are over paris uh, and so life starts with a stint of 14 days spent developing within a clutch of eggs inside a recently shed cuticle um, that's skin for uh, for you guys. The hatchlings enter the world with their full array of adult cells and their progress to adult size is achieved by the growth of individual cells as opposed to cell division, a process that may take up to 
12 sheds. To aid in growth, tardigrades must, of course, feed. And most species are consumers of plants or bacteria, but there are also carnivorous tardigrades that will consume smaller tardigrade species. And this is what most of their time is spent doing, feeding and pioneering new realms. Different species have different life expectancies, but the range for the overall group falls somewhere between three months and two years. So as I said earlier, they are a, um, they are a very short-lived uh, animal. Now a successful and consistent feeder, mature in life, and a tardigrade frontiersman in its own right, breeding is next on this tardigrade's uh, agenda. And while some species are asexual, most species do display male and female specimens. Both sexes have a single gonad just above the intestine. There is also an element of courtship recognized. First observed in 1895, courtship involves up to nine males following and surrounding a female before mating commences. Two ducts run from the testes in males and end in a paw near the bum. And females, on the other hand, have a single duct opening in or around the anus as a cloaca. As I mentioned, tardigrades are oviparous and the males will fertilize the eggs a female produces once they've been laid. The mating ritual is timed to coincide with a molt, allowing the eggs to be laid inside the discarded cuticle and the sperm will be applied across them. Now, I think for me, a lot of the more interesting elements of tardigrade existence were given at the start of this creature feature. Their near unnatural defiance against everything life could throw at them, from the mundane all the way to the insane. Uh, they just keep surviving. They keep plodding along as if nothing is going to shake them. It really is quite remarkable and quite impressive for an animal uh, like this. But if you are into your pop culture, as I am, you may be interested to see if you can spot them in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Family Guy, South Park, and even <laughs> Star Trek Discovery. I managed in in all but the latter because I'm not much of a Trekkie. But a mate told me about a creature called the uh, called the Ripper um, that I know nothing about, but apparently it's, it's based on tardigrades. Yeah, there, there's a tardigrade turns up in that in the first season, and they use it for um oh god it's part of the like warp engine that this particular ship has um i lost interest mm -hmm. in that series i think after like the second series, it started to get a bit weird well um, they started to try and fit in far too much in what was a prequel series that right. was fitting in a gap between other prequel bits and uh, yeah i just yeah it just got a bit meh uh, as i say i I've yet to get into anything Star Trek based. Uh, not not enough lightsabers. Just watch um, Next Gen. That's all you need to do. Okay, that's Next the one Gen. Picard, Next Gen original. Yeah, it's Picard. Picard over Kirk any day. Um, he's a better captain, and let's face it, he doesn't sleep with half of the uh, <laughs> universe. Yeah, Kirk um, wasn't an example of a uh, of how to be a good a good dude, was he? <laughs> But I'm gonna I'm gonna throw an opinion completely unrelated uh, out there that will probably lose us a few uh, Trekkies in the audience um, if there are if there are indeed any of them out there. In fact, in fact, we know there's at least one of them out there uh, who's even appeared in Star Trek. Yes, and we and she knows who she is, so we, we won't say any further than that. But no, um, that and that was Kirk, not Picard. That one, uh, but. I'm going to say I uh, quite like um, Star Trek Enterprise, uh, which is the the original the prequel one that was done 
with uh, Ar- Captain Archer. So, well, Scott Bakula. <laughs> you've, you've, I'm, I'm guessing that that is. I'm guessing well, some people really it's seen prime. in the same it's seen in the same veins as the star uh, Star Wars prequels. Uh, right, right, okay. So, uh, but I so, I like it, and it ended too soon, and they gave it a really rubbish send off. But anyway, well back, after that, back to apparently criminal statement, and my statement about lightsabers, I'm gonna I'm gonna be really heretical to Star Trek fans now because the only ones that I've watched and I quite enjoy. Are the 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 new ones with the um the the messed up timeline? It starts off with Kirk's dad, um, who's played by the guy. Oh, the Kelvin plays... timeline, the film. That's, that's it. Like yeah, films. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, all right. I think I think um Kirk's dad is Thor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Kirk himself is the guy that Wonder Woman is interested in. Chris Pine. That's the one, Chris Pine. Chris Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth, yeah. And yeah, there's the two Chris. You get you get two <laughs> Spocks. Uh, uh the old Spock and this new Spock. And anyway, we're getting off the subject and we're right at the end. Um <laughs> but, yeah, that is It's only that, logical, Jim. Yeah. Um that, that I mean that is really kind of the end really. There you go. Um a creature feature that's completely out of my realm of uh, interest and knowledge, or or was until now, that because I now know a little bit more about the, about tardigrades, and I'm certainly a whole lot more interested in them. I, I feel I've really underappreciated this animal, and now I feel much more appreciative. Uh, thanks to this Patreon request from Jen Greenhall, and so I, like I say, I hope I did the tardigrade proud, and not only fulfilled Jen's request, but also inspired others like myself to have a bit more of a deeper look into this animal. But yeah, uh, I, there's not much else left to say. That's it's the end of the creature feature. I guess one might say, mm. Buenas Tardigrade. I've got to admit, Aaron, I, I really hate the fact that years ago, uh, I got given a micro uh, microscope mm. and I gave it away because I didn't have any use for it at the time. Right. Um, well, actually, I, didn't get, I, I gave it away to the zoo while we were working. Oh, um, because I thought it would be of more use than just sitting in in my house doing very little for use for doing worm egg counts in feces. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, um, it's a really good way of making sure your animals are are not trawling with worms. Is sitting there and just uh, mashing up some of their poo onto a slime yeah, doing you... it in a proper way, and sitting there for a good couple of hours counting eggs. You you of worms. You wouldn't believe. Well, I suppose you would. You would believe, and some of our <laughs> listeners are also you would believe. But honestly, I I couldn't count. I I would lose count of the number of animal different species that I've done <laughs> a a slide of mushy watered down poo to do a, a egg count underneath a microscope. Um, but I, I yeah. really I really wish I hadn't uh, got rid of that microscope because I now want to go out and and find some tardigrades and. Mm. and do exactly that is that not something you could do with your students does it fall I, into that remit at it all? doesn't fall into my remit really um and i don't mm. have any access to microscopes so oh, i'm sure I the lab the department pe- would have one i'm sure the lab people would have some of those but uh, i'm not, I'm not a lab based uh mm. thing so yeah i'd have to go and ask some of the lab people they're scary they've got a they they've got all Bunsen burners and and things like that. We oh, we've I used got... to love playing with Bunsen burners. 
we've got like hay and animal feed and, See, and stuff like that. We used but, to chuck. I'm not. I'm not encouraged. If there's any kids or teenagers listening to this, I'm not encouraging you to do this. But we used to chuck uh, copper sulfate crystals into the Bunsen burner when it was alight. <laughs> Turn the flame, flame blue. Colors, yeah, yeah I just love it. Uh, Simple yeah, things. <laughs> That's one of those weird things that you had to do in in science. Did you have like a, a Bunsen burner license? You had to prove that you could use it and not set the place alight. No, I never had that. I was just oh, let loose that on was these like, things. That was like the big thing in our in our high school. Before you were allowed to use the Bunsen burners, you had to obtain. It was like the, the <laughs> first year of of science. You know, like as you you came in, it'd be like I remember you'd have to get your Bunsen burner license. I remember years late, like years and years later, because um, obviously this came out when I was a young adult. So I played with Bunsen burners as a kid. Years and years later, young adult, that first. Awful movie, awful movie. First um, Ghost Rider movie comes out, right? You know, yeah. like you, you get the you, you, you understand the basic premise of the Ghost. Rider. I know he's not like a super like mainstream character. He is one of my favorite characters. That movie didn't do him justice at all. Basically, he's got he's a skeleton, a flaming skeleton uh, in the presence of evil. Um, but if he's in monster mode and he comes across someone who, who you know, like a uh, well, in the movie, it's his it's his ex girlfriend he comes across, and his his fire kind of it slows it kind of slows down a bit, and it turns blue. I was in the cinema, and I don't know where this came from. It was like a dormant thought that just woke up without any impulse control. <laughs> so that happens, and I was in the cinema. I went on some burner. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I've not thought about it like for years. Not thought about it. Until that moment on the screen. And I don't think I've been able to go a year without thinking, I need to get some copper sulfate crystals to throw on a fire. <laughs> well, there you go, uh, North Devon Fire Service. If uh, you get called out to a, a blue a fire, fire that's blue, uh, you know what's gone on there. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So before you incriminate yourself further, Aaron, um, <laughs> let's move into our mailbag. But before we do that, should just remind everyone as well that uh, Jen Greenhall um, did this because she is one of our patrons, like Aaron pointed out at the top of the creature feature. If you want to join them and be able to get your choice of creature featured um, on our show, this is our very first one. Um, you could join at our animal ambassador tier. Um, so yeah, please uh, do that because we w- we want to hear more uh, of your suggestions when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah, we... So let's move into our, our mailbag, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails. Um, we're going to start things off with the, the question from last week, uh, which was, what animal would you like to see a new species discovered or rediscovered? Um, we've had some interesting comments on this one. Far more people wanting rediscovered uh species extinct species yeah i noticed um, that new species which i suppose it it does lend itself very much to to that this sort of question um from Lindsay kinsella uh he's put glyptodonts i'd love Mm -hmm. a giant armadillo at home thank you very much yeah that'd be very cool um frank load sorry frank load has put living homo floresiensis that would be quite cool uh another member of our genus would be yeah, that would be a massive um, rediscovery. 
Yeah, top that three. would be good. I mean, it would make us rethink what it means to be human in a lot of ways mm. um, and how we are human. Uh, Tom Gray has put, for me, giant ground sloth, thylacine or a species of moa. Uh, I think it would have to be the most significant ecological impact if rediscovered to be alive. Yeah, I think all of those would obviously have significant ecological impacts uh, in their ecosystems. Becky Walker has put new species of Xenathra, but preferably anteaters or aardvarks. Um, yeah, I could I could see another species of anteater being quite cool to come across. Um, or more cats, obviously. <laughs> I don't think you're going to disagree with that one there, Aaron. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pete Watts has said, well, I've always wanted to be a gibbon, so a new species with a mixture of What's gibbon characteristics would be my <laughs> choice. Actually, cancel that. I've just remembered there are plenty in the family already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is, that a, is that someone you know? That's my uncle. Right. I had a feeling. <laughs> it's my dad's older brother. Yeah. Really, really interesting and uh, hilarious um, guy too. Very fond of, of him. Uh, Josie Harrison has put the dodo. Um, that would be very cool. Uh, and Ben, uh, Bill Henderson has put thylacine. We destroyed it. So give the creature another chance and let nature decide its fate. Yeah, very true. Um, we have, yeah, basically been responsible for most of those animals disappearing mm. that were on that list. Uh, but some really good suggestions there from, uh, from everyone uh, as to what they'd like to see, well, be rediscovered or reappear. So this week's question that we have for you is what animal fact surprised you the most? Um, I'm going to, well, basically go with uh, the the absolute uh, devastatingly gigantic loss of habitat for um, numbats going from such a gigantic uh, section of Australia where they used to live down to such a tiny amount. Before doing the research for that particular episode, I was totally and utterly unaware of the uh, the scale of which we have lost that species, and and I yeah, it's totally stunned me, and uh, it's something that we should, well, should be, should definitely come as a shock to everyone. That one, Aaron, what about you? What's a what's an animal fact that surprised you? Yeah, that one was certainly shocking, but I'm struggling to to think, but I'm sure there are others that shocked me. So I think I might. I might revisit this in a week when we take the answers from everybody. That's fair enough. So, yes, we'll quite happily be taking your answers uh, to that on our usual pl uh, places uh, on our social media. You can also um, find us on well, Facebook, Twitter, uh, as well as Instagram. Uh, and, in fact, you can even send it in via our email, which is the nathistorycupboard at gmail.com. Um, and that pretty much brings us to the point in the show where I get to uh, talk about some of the fantastic ways that you can help us out. Uh, the first way is obviously doing what you're doing currently at the moment, listening to us, enjoying, hopefully, uh, us telling you everything about the natural world, uh, and then helping out by, well, different means, uh, like some of our Patreon supporters have done. Uh, and that is by chucking in a buck, throwing 
throwing money towards the podcast's way that has allowed us to uh, make things bigger and better and hopefully expand things in ever greater ways as well. And don't forget that there are perks for doing so as well. So at this point, we'd like to say a big thank you to the following people. Yeah, so a big thank you to Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jen Greenhall and Fogtober uh, for their for their Patreon support. But money isn't everything, uh, and you can help us out in the simplest way possible by liking, subscribing, leaving us a review on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on, um, uh, telling a friend, telling an enemy. All of these ways help us out immensely in allowing the podcast to grow. So a big thank you from myself and Aaron. Yeah, just to reiterate our, our gratitude, because it's it, your support um, uh, through Patreon is is genuinely opening avenues for us to improve uh, the podcast we're looking at things like uh, audio mixers and stuff and recording together and stuff and that's all that's all thanks to patreon support so thank you mm. and that pretty much brings us uh, to the end of this week's episode so uh Aaron, big thank you for coming along uh, thank you very much for having me once again it's been a uh, it's been a ride it's been a ride <laughs> well you know it's been a wild ride um and a big thank you uh to you at home for listening and we will see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye bye, bye.